Welcome everyone, this is The Changelog. We feature the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. Maintainer Week is finally here, and we're excited to make this an annual thing. If Maintainer Week is new to you, check out episode 442 on the feed with Josh Simmons and Kara Souls. On today's show, we're talking with Brett Cannon. Brett is the dev manager of the Python extension for VS Code, Python steering council member, and core team member for Python. He recently shared a blog post, The Social Contract of Open Source. So we invited Brett to join us for Maintainer Week and discuss this topic right here on The Changelog. One more thing, we want you to thank a maintainer on us. We're printing a limited run t-shirt that's free for maintainers, and all you gotta do is thank them. Check the show notes for details and a preview of the t-shirt. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Influx Data, the makers of InfluxDB, a time series platform for building and operating time series applications. InfluxDB empowers developers to build IoT, analytics, and monitoring software. It's purpose-built to handle massive volumes and countless sources of timestamp data produced by sensors, applications, and infrastructure. Learn about the wide range of use cases of InfluxDB at InfluxData.com solutions, network monitoring, IoT monitoring, infrastructure and application monitoring. To get started, head to InfluxData.com changelog and click Get InfluxDB. Again, that's InfluxData.com changelog. Well, it's maintainer week, which is awesome, and we love maintainers, and today we're talking about the relationship between a maintainer and a user and this idea of the social contract of open source, and today we're joined by Brett, I mean, Dr. Brett Cannon. Brett, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you two? First time ever calling you doctor. Yeah, I know, What's up with that? So official. PhD in computer science, bachelor's in philosophy, a long time in school. That's the deal with that. There you go. Well, once you do the time, you have to do the crime, I guess, or you have to get use of it. You got to get that, you got to get that doctor on there. Why not? Yeah. Well, and that's the funny thing, right? Like you, you come out of school after all these over a decade post-secondary and it's one of those like, yeah, you, you have a PhD, you can be called doctor and no one cares. Understandably, but it's one of those weird things, right? Like it's not on your credit cards anymore. It's on my boarding passes for flights. I use it whenever the form for like your prefix, the how to address you comes up. If it's there, I use it. But honestly, most of them don't even have it. So the only time I ever use it is when I give a presentation. I stick it in front of my name on that title slide and I don't even say it when I announce myself. So is that right? You know, unless you're in a public place and somebody's having a seizure and now they want a doctor, you know. Not me. I like it. <laughs> Is there a doctor in the building? I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> wrong doctor, wrong type of doctor, at least. Mm-hmm. Not practicing in medicine, practicing in computer science, of course. Was it worth it? The 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 effort? Did it pay off? No. Are you happy with the time? Can't spent, even get a doctor or? on his credit card. That's not paying off. So the advice I always give to people when they ask me this in general is, I say, I found the master's degree worth it. The PhD. You should only do it if there's something you very specifically want to research to that extent and you're passionate about because there's a lot of bureaucracy to a PhD. And you do research, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff you got to do that's just kind of eh. And unless you really want to go into teaching and become a professor Mm -hmm. or something, it doesn't, at least for me, in my case, because I I thought I wanted to do that because I come from a line of teachers. I thought that was potentially what I wanted to do. And then I realized I actually didn't want to deal with assignments and finals. I just like teaching people that, yeah, you know what? I'm good. So I decided just to go to industry instead. I didn't meet my wife during my PhD. So I got, I did get something good out of it. Yeah. Priceless. But that was actually playing softball. That was not actually in any class or anything. Mm. It was during that time though. It was during that time. Attributed to the, yeah. Okay. So you became a doctor of love. That's right. (laughs) I don't know if she agreed to Dr. Brett Cannon love. <laughs> well, we have you here because in addition to all of this, you have long 
time experience with Python. You're on the Python steering council, a core team member, and been doing it a very long time. How long have you been involved with the Python project? Remind us. Depending on your definition, uh, I got my commit bit April 18th, 2003. But I joined the Python dev mailing list mid-June of 2002. So you can use either of those as the start points. But I typically just go with the commit bit because it's a bit more fun to be able to point to my very first commit in the repo and say, that was that was it. That's day one. So it's been over 18 years. At yeah, this point. so you're pushing that's two decades. Longer than my web career. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, you got me beat. Yeah, it's a long time. That. I didn't start actually doing anything on the web until like 2005. So Oh, wow. Yeah, you got your commit bit before I even like pushed HTML to the internet. Good way to make me feel old there, Adam. I appreciate it was, that. It was GeoCities <laughs> even. I mean, like, feel real old, Brett. Oh, oh, geez. Yeah, I remember my first 28.8K modem on Earthlink back in the day and then being one of the first people I knew who got a uh, cable modem. I think that was like a five meg connection, which was major because it allowed me to download the, I think it was first Diablo demo that was 50 megs and I'd leave my modem running. It was on my modem. I'd leave my modem running all day long while I was at school and high school to download that 50 meg demo for the first time. Wow. And it crapped out the first time. So I had to do it. It's sad to do it a second day. But yeah, I remember my first blog on Earthlink and uploading it to, you know, back when everyone had like earthlink.net slash tilde, like your email address and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Good times. The good old days. Yeah. Yeah. There were days. I don't know. They were actually days. bad days. I remember when I was trying to load IGN, which was still, I think it's still the same website, which is like video game reviews yep. and news and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was on, uh, what's the next one up from 28, like a 54K modem? I don't know. Yeah, 54, almost, yeah. 54 56. I, yeah, somewhere 56. in those. 56, 56, 56 is 28 times two. There you go. Rings a bell. And there was a picture of a new Zelda game or something. And I remember like being all about this picture and it was loading in one line at a time, just like, like pixel by <laughs> pixel. And I'm like, here it comes, you know, like 30%. I can see like Link's head, you know, and it just took, I mean, minutes, probably yeah. seven, eight minutes to load in that picture. But I was super stoked. Remember all those articles back in the day talking about the various ways to progressively load your images Right back when every kilobyte matters, and oh, now yeah. most websites yes. are like measured in the megs just from JavaScript alone to load. It's just right, a mm -hmm. very different world. Very different world. Well, the cool thing is, is that you've been around for a long time. That's sort of like part of your journey too, like what you've been doing. Yeah. I didn't realize you got a commitment to Python that far back. That's that's like what we just said more than my entire career. Yeah, it was far enough back that so I took a gap year between my bachelor's and starting my master's program because jumping from a philosophy degree to computer science, I knew I was going to have to kind of build up almost like a programming resume to prove to master's programs that I know what I'm doing. Cause I took some CS courses. I did my undergrad at Berkeley and I was able to squeeze in some courses. There's a long story as to why I couldn't even pull off a minor due to unit caps and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I took a gap year to try to kind of build up a portfolio so that when I applied to these programs, I could say like, no, I do know what I, I'm doing. Please let me in without that bachelor's degree. And I was able to do this and get involved. So I got the commit bit and then I showed up in my master's program and some people were like, oh yeah, what do you do for fun? Blah, blah. It's like, oh, I contributed to this open source project called Python. And half the time people go, what's that? And the other half would go like, is that that language where white space matters? And I mean, <laughs> nowadays, I can't remember the last time I ran to someone who didn't know what Python was. So it's very much a interesting and wild progression of popularity and just my open source life with Python to see it go from people not knowing what the heck it is to top three programming languages in the world. Re relying upon it. Uh, helicopters landing on Mars because of, you know, some of the underpinnings of, That's of right. Python. Yeah, we have Martian helicopters. We, we get you your cat photos on Instagram. Uh, yeah. I don't know the state, but for a long time, all your YouTube videos were thanks to Python. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's a big deal. So we want to fast forward to today and talk about a very interesting article. I think you have a keynote, you have a presentation, you've been talking about this mm -hmm. social contract of open source. So you've been doing this for a very long time. You've been a maintainer of the Python language and the community, really. Uh, a participant in that community and kind of a maintainer of the community to a certain degree, helping guide these new ways of doing things with the steering council and the voting. And there's just been a lot involved there. Mm -hmm. And 
here you are, April 25th, 2021, talking about what you view as the social contract of open source. You've also talked about kindness on the show before. So very much, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's the philosophical side, but it's very much the, hu- the human side of, of the open source scene. And you have, you have thoughts, you have opinions. Can you share with us kind of the, the big picture, what you think this contract is, and we'll dive into the details? Yeah, I should admit my wife, Andrea, is in HR, which probably adds to my caring about community and how people are treated and how that works. And then my mother was a fourth grade teacher. So that also Mm -hmm. kind of ties into be kind to each other kind of thing. Right. But yeah, the general philosophy is making sure everyone treats each other with respect and just basically being kind to each other because this great grand experiment with open source does not work if we don't treat each other well, right? Both from a maintainer, contributor, and user perspective, because there's cascading effects. If someone comes into a project and starts to chastise you or be rude to you or miss you and just basically abuse you. I mean, it really does come down to psychological abuse and I know it's a strong term, but it really can get pretty bad. It leads to burnout, right? Literally people just have to walk away for their own mental safety to be able to keep doing open source. So, or just to be not even do open source. That's the problem. They burn out and they walk away and they stop. And then that has a cascading effect then that users don't get that software anymore because guess what? They're gone now. And same with contributors, right? If someone's being abused as a maintainer, that typically can eat into them becoming grumpier and not wanting to do open source or being grumpy when they do do it and feeling negative towards it and makes them rude in terms of dealing with the community and all that. And it can become a very nasty cycle of just negativity. And so for me, it's a little frustrating to an extent that this still has to be said, but I think kind of just inherent to the way the system works, that open source is just this huge, wide, broadly global thing that I think if we weren't in, most of us just would never have this level of exposure to the rest of the world, that just learning how to interact with others from different cultures and different places with different expectations has certain requirements. And part of that's being kind because and setting proper expectations as well, because there's interactions and then they're setting the expectation of it all, right? Because to me, open source is a gift and it's a perpetual gift. Like every commit is a gift to the world that me as maintainer have chosen to give out because I just want it to, right? For whatever reason. But when you stop viewing that as a gift and start viewing it as something that you're owed or expecting, mm-hmm. it shifts your mental model and it leads to you feeling like your people are in a position to be mad at you, right? Like, I didn't get a release out when I expected. I didn't fix this bug. I broke something. I said I was going to try to do something and I didn't do it. People get really agitated. And I get it because some people are having a bad day. Their company depends on the software or whatever. But I'm also choosing to do this either in my free time or because work was lucky enough. I'm lucky enough to work at a company that's put some time into Python as open source or work pays me to work on open source because the Python extension for code is open source as well. But that doesn't mean people should feel like it's okay to come in and be mean and rude and trying to set this proper level of expectation of how to interact with each other and not basically get worked up is this message I'm trying to get out so that hopefully we can all kind of step back a bit, realize that all these volunteers and all these maintainers are mostly doing this other kindness of their heart and how to make sure that we can foster that kindness so that they can continue to continue to do this so that we all benefit, right? Maintainers yeah. get to keep doing what they love and enjoy Users continue to get wonderful, free, top quality software because they just want to. And contributors get to help mold and shape and move that software in a way that they need it to go. And just to also support the maintainers and maybe eventually become maintainers themselves. But if we don't basically make this, I mean, to be kind of cliche, a circle of love here and appreciation, it won't last. And I really want to make sure this continues to last. And I don't want it to last because we managed to get enough fresh blood who are willing to put up with stuff to replace those of us who burn out. I'd rather have it be, oh, everyone sticks around for as long as they feel motivated enough for it, not because people burn them out, but because they just left because it's just their time. Yeah. That's why I like this idea that open source is a gift, that yeah. these commits are a gift because that sets the expectation. And I wonder if, you know, whomever might be an abuser out there, to some degree, maybe unintentionally, maybe it definitely moves into intentional because maybe the clarity of the expectation from that user perspective, or it could be an organizational user, it could be an, an individual user mm-hmm. to a community, to an individual maintainer, to, you know, the core team, to Python itself, or to any open source project. I just wonder if it, if this idea that open source is a gift sets the lens 
so to speak, that what is to be expected is literally a gift rather than, you know, payment. Like, you know, I'm here as a user. I have needs of this project. You must show up because I have needs. That doesn't set a good expectation. And I wonder if this idea that as a gift, it sets a more clear expectation of open source at large, that I show up and get used to this software. And that's great as a gift. It's not that because of that or because of my need for it or because of my business's, you know, critical usage of this software now makes you have to show up every single day. That you showing up every day is a gift. Yeah, like the blog post that Jared alluded to, I use the analogy that it's like putting a bunch of uh, USB flash drives on your front lawn with a sign that says free, right? Like every commit to some project is going to be on that flash drive. It's the Git repo, right? And you can just come by and grab it and do whatever you want with it. And as long as I'm enjoying myself, I'll keep refreshing that pile of flash drives. But does that give you the right to come to my front door and leave a flaming bag of something because you're upset that uh, how I did something? Right. Or leaving yeah. me an angry letter or standing from the street screaming that Brett Cannon makes horrible software and you should never listen to him. And he, he ruined my life because he took away this API or something. Now, that isn't to say that people could end up with certain expectations, right? Like Tidelift's model of paying the maintainers so that they actually do have a financial not only incentive, but um, almost expectation to right. do certain things. That makes sense. And I do understand that. And I think that's great. But for a lot of people where they're not being paid to work on this stuff, that expectation I don't think carries over. I don't think it's a, mm-hmm. that expectation always holds, oh, good luck getting paid for it. I hope you do. I don't think those are equivalent. I think the, the transaction here is different. When you start to receive money for your open source work, which I totally am accepting of and support, and I think it's great when it works out for people, that sets a certain expectation. But when it's a volunteer... I think that completely shifts it, right? You don't go to the soup kitchen and yell at the person spooning out the soup because you don't like the soup, right? Like, that's not right. Yeah. And this is not to equate open source to helping the homeless here, but the point is, is they're all volunteers and you need to recognize the fact that it is volunteerism, right? It's taking away time from family and friends and whatever. Like, we are all here on this planet for a very finite amount of time. And I am choosing to spend part of that finite amount of time creating software that I am going to give out to the rest of the world. Right. And that's my decision. But be aware of the fact that that has a cost, right? People forget that. Like I'm literally using up my time on this planet away from family and friends to do this for whatever reason. But I think if people kept that in mind more, there'd be a lot less agitation and anger and just frustration at people when things don't work out. Because otherwise it's just don't use the software. Or I could just yank yeah. it off, right? There's nothing stopping this. There was a world before open source. It's not like the world's going to collapse if my software went and That's away. happened before. The yanking off and taking away and you yeah. know, things like that. I mean, there is this backlash. And, you know, this is Maintainer Week. This week is a collaboration between the community, GitHub, Tidelift. We're obviously putting something out on Thursday. This is for Upstream here in particular, you know. But this week-long thing is meant to be a place for maintainers to gather to share and to be celebrated. And so I think, you know, part of what your post did was define that lens between maintainer and user. And so that I think if you can have a clarity between relationships, you can have a clarity of expectation too. You know, what's your role in this relationship? What's a user's role in this relationship? And what do both get equally from it? And what can be expected from either? Because then you can have a position to understand the necessary kindness, the necessary empathy, to show up and to give freely as a volunteer or to take freely as a user of free and open source to use this gift to the world. Yeah. So I think a good way to, to summarize that is there's a separation between the person and the code. And I think a lot of us forget that. In the blog posts, I talk about Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative and philosophy degree kicking there in there. Go. There you go. Uh, there you go. And part of what that says is don't treat people as a means to an end. Treat them as an end in and of themselves, right? And basically what that means is don't treat people as something to get from them. Treat them as human beings as they are and on their own, right? Don't go to a maintainer and say, oh, you're the way I'm going to get this open source software. I'm treating you as just Brett Cannon, a human being. You happen to have this software over here and that's awesome. I will talk with you and work with you and whatever to potentially get something changed. Maybe, maybe not. But there is a separation there of treating me as a human being 
right? Versus as just the way to get something out of me. And I think yeah. that's also parts of what's lost here, right? Stop. Don't treat maintainers and people as something to get out of you. I'm still a person. Just treat me as a person and just realize I happen to produce something that is useful to you. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. once again, it's all perspective. And I understand that not everyone necessarily thinks this way, right? Once again, if it wasn't for this crazy world of the internet, I mean, even on the internet, right? How often do you interact with someone from another state, right? If you're in the US, right? Or another awesome. province like I'm in Canada. Like we happen to, but if I, if we weren't in the tech industry and happened to have the outreach and speaking we do, chances are you won't talk to other people, right? And so kind of slowly growing, ending up in this situation where you're interacting with people in other countries with different expectations, just different ways of communicating, all this stuff. It's new for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people never stop and think about, okay, Maybe the way I have learned to communicate within my family or my circle of friends or my neighborhood or maybe my state, if you go that far, and if you happen to travel far for your university or something or not, what have you, your exposure level is going to very much dictate kind of probably how much you've potentially thought about this. But it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about and understandably, but it's one of those, okay, what are the proper expectations for everyone on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just my expectations, and just how do you deal with that? Because a lot of people just go like, oh, well, this is how I communicate at home. This is how I communicate at work. And it's okay there. And people don't go like, oh, well, maybe that's not the way to communicate with other people. Right? And it yeah. leads to problems. And people also don't think like maybe I wasn't taught a nice way to communicate. And suddenly you have to go like, look, this is not really a good way to communicate. To me, this comes off as this. When I talk to people online, I always try to give them the benefit of the doubt and assuming like, okay, you come from some town somewhere where you just haven't been exposed to other places and only the people surrounding you have always treated you this way and you've learned that this is an acceptable way to communicate. So I sort of go, hey, just so you know, the way this came off to me is this. I don't think you necessarily meant it that way. Yeah. Assuming you didn't, this is what I think you're asking. And I try to use it as a way to teach people at least once. Past that, if you're not listening, then fine, you're a jerk. And I have to Mm -hmm. wash my hand of you because I don't want to burn out. I'd rather get to year 19 if contributing to Python and not stop at 18. So it's a very interesting thing here of it's psychologically, even just learning how to treat people as people. It's not even just treating people as a means to an end in terms of software. It's literally just learning how to communicate with human beings and how to treat people. As I said, I don't fault people when they don't get it right, but it is something that I think a lot of us don't think about that there's a certain level of psychology here. This episode is brought to you by Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools super fast and super easy. They have a ton of integrations and templates to start with. With a click of a button in seconds, you can start with a new Postgres admin panel application, kick off an admin panel for reading from and writing to your database built on Postgres. This app lets you look through, edit, and add users, orders, and products. It's too easy to get started with Retool. Head to retool.com slash changelog to learn more and try for free. Again, that's retool.com slash changelog. I'm glad you mentioned psychology. I'm curious if part of your philosophy degree, if you had to do anything of psychology, because it's, you know, thinking humanity. Because the one piece that's I think is important to mention is that often in a digital interaction, you're missing some data, mm-hmm. right? To treat a human as a human, it requires a human element. Mm-hmm. And often that human element is removed. You know, we have it here in Zoom. I can see your face. I know who you are. We have a relationship, et cetera. It's easier for me to treat you like a human because my lizard brain doesn't forget, you know, like, hey, Brett's still Brett. He's still a human, et cetera. But in most of our interactions on the Internet, you know, or in digital spaces tend to have the human element removed. And and like you said, it's probably not the fault of them until maybe you say, hey, I the way you said this, I heard this this way, et cetera. But I think it's important to remember and to point out that there's a piece of data crucially missing for a real human interaction that is removed and is missing. And it's it's up to us to sort of like 
click and remember or set a habit, like remind myself, this is a human interaction. There is human beings over there. They do matter. They have families, they have moms, they have dads, whatever, you know, they have people that they matter to, they have kids, they have whatever, like there's importance there. And you forget that, you Mm -hmm. know, that data piece is sort of crucial. We sort of forget about that. Yeah, no. So not, I did not specifically have any psych courses as part of my philosophy degree. This partially comes from my wife who has a minor in psych from my mother who just being a teacher just innately just kind of taught me to think about how people might be coming like to school for her, like what her students are potentially going through at home and how that affects how they act at school and why they might act out and whatever. I was just lucky enough. I happened to live in a situation in terms of who surrounds me to just have contemplated this and have the be able to piece that together as a, as a potential reason is why people are the way they are and how this kind of affects this grand experiment of open source and how this kind of just plays out. Well, your career shows the grand experiment, right? I mean, you know, since the time my career, even, you know, the world's software now sort of relies upon open source as its foundation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that way in the beginning of your career when you got the commit bit, as you mentioned, like people, you would say, I work on Python. They say, what is that? White space, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and now they're like, oh, Python. So cool. Like since you're 18 years of that commit bit, you've seen a massive change in the way that the world relies upon open source software. And there's that necessary component, user, maintainer, contributor, et cetera, foundation, core team, all these things to sort of make this possible. And that just wasn't the case. And so I think over time we're sort of maturing and it's talks like this and scenarios like this that bring out some of those points. Like we are just all humans and to help understand those roles and break it down. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, right, like there's structure you have to put in as projects grow and become more mature. Right. And, and there's two aspects to that, too. There's there's the maturation of open source in general, which I think also is what kind of leads to some of the scrumpiness. Right. There seems to always be a tipping point in projects where you're small enough that the people participating in general are just kind of friendly and enthusiastic, whatever. And then you hit that tipping point where suddenly people start relying on you and not just because they want to, just because mm-hmm. they need to. And that's when you start to get more of the grumpiness and you kind of have to start dealing with that a bit more. And then the question is, is just, are you able to deal with that? From a popularity and size perspective, there's an absolute versus relative number here, right? Like, let's say Python has 10 million users, right? It's probably more. I don't know if numbers. Well, just 10 million is a nice round number. Even if point, I don't know, point 0.01% of those users are real jerks. And we all know that number is way higher percentage wise, probably, unfortunately. We're still talking thousands. Yeah. Right, who all know how to get a hold of me. It's like the law of big numbers. Exactly. It's exactly the law of big numbers. And it's one of these unfortunate things where you don't get prepared for it unless you plan for it. And like for Python, for instance, we've tried to deal with it, right? Like Python originally was Guido Van Rossum as benevolent dictator for life. We went for him for final calls. Everything else was basically just consensus. You did what you wanted. And everything was done over the Python dash dev at python.org mailing list, right? And it was a mirror between Usenet. And the mailing list, right? Back when people knew what Usenet was. Nowadays, we have multiple mailing lists from Python Ideas to Python Dev to Python Committers. We have a discourse instance. Guido's retired and we now have the steering council that I'm on. We have the PEP process that wasn't... It's always been there since I've joined, but it was not originally there in Python's history because Python's uh, celebrating its 30th year of going uh, open source and public uh, this year, actually. Uh, February of 1991, uh, Funny enough, before Linux actually got released really? as open source. Yep. And so it's one of these things where... What did it run on? <laughs> historically, what happened was is Guido wanted a scripting language for the Amoeba distributed operating system that was being developed at CWI, which is a research lab in the Netherlands that he worked at. And he didn't like the idea of Bash. And he had knew the people who worked on the ABC programming language also at CWI and had learned some things from them and talking with them. And so he decided like, you know what, in December of 1989, I think I'm going to try to write a scripting language for this OS. And he created Python. And then he open sourced it on uh, compa.lang.something. I can't remember the exact Usenet group on February of 91. And it's been going ever since. Amoeba. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, so th- this leads to building structure and how to deal with it. But it's also one of those yeah. things that's there's lots of growing pains. It's when do you hit that inflection point to add some extra layer to deal with things? You never quite know. It's like do it too soon. It feels too onerous. Do it too late and you, you start to have growing pains and all that. But it's I think 
from a general maturation of open source in general, I think one of these things that we've not dealt with is the fact that originally open source with all these maintainers was a passion project for everyone, right? We didn't, I don't think a lot of us when we started expected to be like mission critical. Mm. Let's help make sure a freaking helicopter on Mars goes where it goes kind of dependency, right? Like I never expected that in my life. It's crazy. And, or like to be very specific, like Python was on perseverance street that handled the streaming of the video from the parachutes. Right. So I never expected to have software on two planets. Like it still blows my mind to this day. Yeah. But I didn't get into this expecting that. And that also means I'd never, and I think for a lot of people didn't get into this expecting people to have that level of dependence on me. And I think when people start to take that dependence is when the stress from people of not getting what they want really kicks in. Mm-hmm. Right. It's one of these things of, Oh my God, my company depends on this. My job depends what I do day to day. My job depends on this. I need to get this fixed. Why aren't you fixing this? Right. That's where I think the stress kicks in. And I don't think anyone goes into this signing up with that expectation or knowing that that's going to come. And I think as an industry, we haven't taken the time quite yet to really try to structure and basically modify our view of what open source is in terms of dependency, right? Like we realize open source runs the world. If Linux went away, the planet would collapse, right? There's a lot of, if all of open source went away, we're really screwed. But I don't think anyone stopped and think like, will the open source community able to handle this? Yeah. Are we setting ourselves up for success, both as users and as maintainers to make sure that we treat each other to make sure that this continue to go, right? Like as a maintainer, I don't have problems with you depending on my software to that level. But you also have to realize, once again, human being here, I can only handle so much stress. Don't come to me saying like the nuclear plant's going to melt down if you don't fix this bug kind of problem, right? I'm not set for that. Mm -hmm. If you need that, I mean, I think a lot of people forget it's open source. If I don't fix it, you can fork it. You can vendor a copy and fix it yourself, right? Large companies do this all the time. Right. And that's fine. That's why open source exists. People forget that big draw regime of open source was not the free bit. It was the open parachute in case you had to fork it to get what you wanted. But when corporations started to really latch onto it and saw the free label, like, oh my God, Python, which is probably worth millions and millions and millions of years of development. I mean, it's probably into the billions at this point worth of software development for free. Free? Are you kidding me? I can't write this kind of programming language from scratch. I'd rather do that instead of using C or whatever. I'm just going to randomly choose a language not to pick on C. (laughs) But it's one of these things where I don't think anyone stopped and thought about, well, okay, how do we make sure that we don't break this? Right. And I don't think we've ever sat down as a community to go like, okay, where do we need to draw these lines? Where do we need to start talking as a community out loud and why I do these blog posts and everything else to say, yeah, all right, we need to make sure that we treat these people appropriately, realize that they're not here to give us free stuff. They're here to just give us stuff in general and we can use it however we want, but we should not go in with any expectations. Instead of going, oh, cool, there's this free thing I'm going to keep using and I expect it to lead to a certain thing. No, no, it's just free thing picked up off the street. If it works for you, awesome. If it doesn't, don't come bring it back to me. Just take it to the dump and just do it. Or if you need to modify the chair that you picked up off my front lawn, good on you. But that's your chair now. Don't come knocking on my door. Thankfully, I think we're starting to have these conversations. We're slowing down. I think more and more people are becoming aware of the foundation and the people who are building or have built or continue to maintain that foundation and, and this discrepancy and this problem of dependency and how important the foundation really is and how we need to support that foundation. If we go back to the gift as a framing, I think it's the perfect framing for open source. I almost called it a metaphor, but it's not. It's like literally a gift, right? The metaphor Mm -hmm. is the stack of USB discs or USB discs. What do you say? A compact disc? USB USB drives. drives. Yeah, I almost said DVD drives, but I realized the kids wouldn't know what the hell I was talking about. So I stuck with the (laughs) floppy disks. You should have used floppy disks. That's a phenomenal metaphor, honestly, the USB drives. Yeah. But yes, gift is literal. Yeah, gift is literal, but let's analyze a little bit because it's a fascinating gift, right? Because Mm -hmm. it is a snapshot in time, right? Like Mm -hmm. the gift you give, like you said, each commit each thing release, or maybe you cut a release. That release is the gift. Mm-hmm. And that's a snapshot in time. And then it's received. Now you give it to the world, but it's received individually or corporately, or you know, you come to it yourself and receive that gift. And then it goes and lives on in a world that changes. You know, like you 
you gifted a snapshot, but that has to live on in a, a sea of change. Yeah. And the person who receives the gift because of the value of the gift, I'm just empathizing a little bit with the angry users to a certain degree because yeah. we have to see where they're coming from as well. I think it's valuable as maintainers yeah. to understand the angry customer or user because yeah. it helps us not take everything personally and it helps us, you know, deflect. Why are they acting this way? I'm I'm not giving any excuses to be a jerk or anything like that. But I'm just trying to understand. If I receive this amazing valuable gift, I start to build my house on top of it, right? I may not even understand it. So like large corporations, experienced developers, we love open source because it's open and modifiable and I can go in there and fix that bug. Lots of people who receive the gift actually don't have the skills to do that. And so we find ourselves dependent and unable to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And then we start to build our life around that gift. And then things go wrong because maybe the gift didn't change, but the world changed around it. Bit rots are a very real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a bug, but now it's a bug because I updated this other thing or, you know, the t somebody decided they're not going to use time zones anymore because of some sort of <laughs> vote that happened in this part of the world. You know, crazy stuff happens. And now I'm just like, I got nothing to do. Like, how can I, what do I do? Well, I just turn back to the gift giver and I'm like, help, you know, yeah. and that doesn't always come out very well because A, we don't communicate well. B, like Adam said, we don't understand the humanity because all we're seeing is the text area or the GitHub issue. And then C, because we got all other problems of our lives going on, right? Like my boss is breathing down my neck or my website is down. I'm losing money or worse. Yeah. I'm mining Bitcoin for some random stranger on my <laughs> website. Like it gets real bad. And so it's, I think it's, it's not excusable, but it's easy to see why the grumpiness happens because you really yeah. do depend on this thing, which has no strings attached, but you sure wish they did. You know, you sure wish they did. It's crazy. Yeah. I think understanding motivation is really important because yeah. to be very clear here, the vast majority of people are very kind, generous people. And I have absolute pleasure interacting with, right? Like I enjoy talking with people and helping with the problems and stuff. So I don't have issues. It's once again, just the law of numbers here of, right. It takes 10 kindnesses to undo that one bad interaction. And depending on your reach, it might take a really a lot of effort to get those 10 kindnesses to wipe out that one bad. And you might never, right? If your project's too small, you get that one grumpy user and it'll just kill you instantly. Yeah. So, but yes, understanding that motivation, it's a coping mechanism almost to an extent, right. but it's really understanding, all right, deep breath. Why is this person upset? As you said, Jared, usually it's someone's bringing down their neck, the bad day at work. Kids could have just been acting up. Who right. knows? There's a whole litany. You never know. You never know. So there does seem to be some entitlement that comes up a lot in these cases where you're like, eh, this person seems entitled. And, and maybe it's a lack of understanding of how the whole thing works. They need to go read that blog post, you know? Yeah. But I work at big companies, so you should give me what I want because I'm important. It's like, right. Sorry, buddy. No. <laughs> or you work at big companies, they pay you to take care of right. it. Why aren't you doing it? Kind of thing. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of assumption happening, yeah. right? And I think it's because yeah. it's lack of connection. Anytime there's a conflict, the number one way to, to resolve conflict is more connection. Right. You're not going to get it from less connection. Yeah. It's more connection. And connection is understanding, right? Connection is me understanding what you're going through. Right. You understand what I'm going through, why I'm the angry user, why you're the hurt maintainer. I'm, I almost said butthurt, but I'm going <laughs> to rewind that. I didn't say butthurt, but I almost now said you said butthurt. it. The hurt maintainer. You know, you got your feelings hurt. You got... 10, 10 awesomes, but one negative, and that negative is just it's always way heavier than the awesome. Oh, yeah, you know? totally. And that happens, but it's more connection, you know, that resolves conflict. Yeah, and I wish this stuff was taught in school, right? Like, I wish people who learn this stuff. Source in, or well, not even just open, yeah, both. Like, I wish there was a class in high school to just teach people how to just be decent human beings, along with how right. to balance a checkbook, right? Like, there's... Seems actually, you're onto something here. I think if there could be like a, I'm going to participate as a user or a maintainer or anything in open source, here's some prerequisites. Yeah. Understand that there are maintainers out there. Understand that there are core teams. Understand that there are foundations, and they have these roles and these responsibilities, and this is a gift. And that it doesn't change the fact that you use it in a dynamic world, this static gift... And that things change, but here's the scenario. It's almost like, I almost think that should exist. I agree with that. Like, that should be somewhere. We should put that down somewhere. Yeah, like, speaking in general, like, I would hope you would learn this in kindergarten kind of stuff. But 
Well, at least at the university level, you would hope undergrad courses at just general software engineering where they talk about open source, just explaining how the system works and what it represents and what it means would hopefully get kids while they're in undergrad before they go out into the working world, the right mindset of how to view and approach this and understand how to work with it because it's now become such an integral part of our industry and our jobs as yeah. software developers that you can't ignore it. It's going to be there. So let's mm. have that conversation at that point where you need to explain to kids as like, here's how to be successful in using open source, not even contributing right. or making, just using, right? We teach kids how to write at APIs and SDKs, right? And how to do this stuff. So why don't we teach them how to actually use it? And part of that's going to be using open source because guess what? It's true. That's where they're getting all their SDKs and APIs. My only pushback would be you learn whenever you have, when you find use in, mm -hmm. and your brain is open to learning. Yes. So maybe not in mass that you are teaching this to, you know, let's just say the younger folks that are going to university, but maybe those who are sort of getting into the tech spaces. I'm tinkering with an Arduino or I'm, mm -hmm. you know, learning an SDK or an API. Maybe then it would make sense to say, you know, hey, at some point you're going to interact with, you know, GitHub.com. And GitHub.com basically is all of open source. The, I mean, there's some non-open source on it that's freely available to see, you know, source available, so to speak. Right. There's a license attached, but it's, you can see the code, you can interact with the community. But if you're on this website, for the majority of it, it's going to be open source and there's certain rules in this land. You know, here's some of the, the lay of the land, so to speak. I mean, that, that should be a thing. I right. just had an awesome idea. Adam loves when I have awesome ideas live on the show. I Are you ready it. for Please. it? I'm ready. Oh. Is it more t-shirts? Open source school <laughs> with Dr. Brett Cannon. Oh, man. No pressure. Well, that's the <laughs> it pressure brings you back me. to your roots. Yeah, your mom's a kindergarten yes. teacher. That's true, yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> great idea on the spot to go with Jared's. Like, I wish I could almost have, like, a contributor license agreement that requires... I certify that I have read Nadia Eggball's working in public, and I understand the concepts in there, and I agree with them almost, right? Like, one of these things of this, like... That would be great for book sales. It'd be great for Nadia and her book sales, <laughs> She would be down with that. No, I will fully admit, Nadia is an acquaintance. Uh, she's a great person. And I actually bought copies. She sent me a copy because I'm actually quoting the book a couple times. But I actually bought copies for my in-laws and my parents to read to help nice. explain what the hell I do. But also for them to understand, why did mm -hmm. I sometimes act grumpy on the phone sometimes when they called <laughs> and said, how are you doing? I'm like, ah, it's like, yeah. oh, now you get it. Yeah. Like nice. My in-laws have been reading it. My parents live in the States. I live in Vancouver. And my in-laws are here. So I get to talk to them when they read it. It's like, oh, I, I'm getting it now. Now I understand. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like I want a way to have people when they come in. It's like, please set your expectations properly. This isn't just code of conduct stuff, right? It's not just how to treat me. I want you to come in with the proper set of expectations of what to expect out of me in this software. Yeah. As you both have said, it's a gift. Here's the commit you're pulling from. That's your gift. Don't keep expecting more gifts necessarily. Right. It may or may not happen. This is not a subscription service that no I gave strings you attached. Free. Yeah. You know, a yeah, gift with yeah. strings attached is a bribe, really. Or extortion, I guess, in some cases. Yeah. But it is. Sure. Like if, there's a, if you give someone a gift and you're like, by the way, now you owe me one. Like, that's not a gift. No, so, exactly. Yeah. That is not a gift. It's so. not a gift. It's a favor. Exactly. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Zero. They help teams monitor, control, and predict their cloud spend. And I talk with Ben Johnson, co-founder and CTO at Obsidian Security. They get tremendous value from using Cloud Zero. Ben shared with me the challenges they face driving innovation and customer value while also trying to control and understand their Amazon Web Services spend. We want our engineers to move fast, to innovate, and to really focus on driving customer value. Yet at the same time, reality is we have to pay for cloud compute and storage. And the challenge around AWS is often that you have multiple accounts, you have lots of different services, you have some people who only have access to development environments, not necessarily production. A lot of these different challenges across services, across uh, accounts, that make it hard to understand the positive or, or negative impact to the costs that the new feature, the scale, 
you know, the, the maybe the change in architecture are having. And so giving our team more insight into the ramifications, again, positive or negative, of their changes in order to maybe we need to really move fast. Let's have less worry about cost right now. Or maybe now we're in a more stable place. Let's let's drive down the cost so we can you know give uh, give those cost savings on to our customers or improve our own margin. So a product like Cloud Zero can really help your team get a handle on costs, get alerted to those spikes, feel good when you actually see the costs drop, and do all that without a whole lot of investment of your own time. All right. If your organization shares similar struggles as Ben and Obsidian Security, check out Cloud Zero today. Learn more and get a demo at cloudzero.com slash changelog. Again, cloudzero.com slash changelog. But you're right, though, Brett, that the outside of the tech echo chambers, there's there's not much of an understanding to what open source is and the value it brings to the world or the importance that it plays on like the the progress and innovation of the world. Like, yeah. like we said, with your career and since your tenure as a, having commitment on Python, the world's changed in terms of open source, the requirement of it and the enjoyment of it and the reliance upon it has totally shifted in that 18 years. Like that's a dramatic shift for all of the world in 18 years. That's massive. That's like more than a 180. Yeah. Can you do more than a 180? That's like 360. 360. It's like going right back to the same direction. But well, you go back to where you were, so it's not. <laughs> it's a massive it's shift, a essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Or if you're Tony Hawk, it's a 720. That's right. Sure. Yeah, and we just never had this conversation, right? It just happened gradually and honestly kind of quickly. I think it's one of these movements of people and thought that you just don't see coming and you don't sit down and have a thought about. It just kind of just kind of waves over you feels gradual, but grand grand timescale of software and all that, it was, it's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. And I think we've just never really all sat down and gone like, yeah, you know what, this is how we think this should be thought of and treated and agreed on. And cause it's not like when I tweeted out my blog posts and people came out and said like, yeah, I don't agree with this. Not just from the way I phrase things, but literally like, I don't agree as soon like one person said, I don't agree. Basically, as soon as you have a website and you start kind of pushing it out on social media or whatever and say, I have this thing, they viewed it as I have now established a contract with the world as that is how it's going to go. Now, I personally disagree with that view because it's like, that's still best effort, right? If I say my deprecation policy is this, I'm going to do my best to hold myself to it, but it might not work out and it might break. And as my wife would say, you don't know me from Adam. So that's kind of weird that you thought I'd hold myself to that necessarily, right? Like not mm-hmm. to not to make it sound like I'm a bad person or anyone else is gonna automatically break their promises, but it's best effort, really, when you think right. about it. Once again, free here, right? Please set your expectations accordingly. Well, that's what I think is the deal, is the expectation setting. And so I think as open sourcers, like when we do open source, you know, we should set expectations explicitly in whatever yep. ways that we can. And honestly, if you do say this is free and I'm going to maintain it for free for five years, then I expect you to do that. I don't think it's unfair for me at that point to say, well, you did say I'm going to maintain this. You know, I don't know who's doing that. But for instance, if you said something like if you were that bold in your statement of like, I'm going to work on this for five years nonstop. Now, I may be foolish to believe you when you say that, but I don't think I'm insincere to say, okay, you said that now, where's your best effort? But if we set the expectation exactly like we ought to or what we believe it is at the time, and I think we could probably develop better tooling, better ways of doing this. I think a shared nomenclature on what kind of, you know, Brett, you're a listener of the show, you know, a lot of of times we ask like, what kind of open source project is this? Because they aren't all the same. In fact, very few of them are the same. Naughty did a pretty good job of providing some taxonomy around the kinds of projects. But if we can be explicit as open source people to say, here it is. There, here's my gift to the world, and here's the license, and here's the expectations, and you know, etc. Then I think we leave less ambiguity for people to make assumptions that are incorrect. Yeah, and I don't know how to communicate that out, and I think it's hard. that's the tricky bit, right? Because like, so like for me, like there's community open source and there's corporate open source, right? And I work on both. Like Python's community open source. There's no single corporation behind Python. Python is very much run by volunteers and community. And we're just, just starting to get people funded to work on stuff. But it's like companies 
either hiring people directly and giving them the free time to work on it. Like Microsoft gives me at least 20% time every week to work on Python, however I see fit. But that doesn't mean Microsoft has a control over Python itself, right? And we now have sponsors giving us enough money. We're actually going to be hiring our first dev in residence. So we now have, we're going to have our first hired person to help work on Python. Nice. Yeah, it's great. But once again, community run, we're the Python Software Foundation is the person doing that hiring. The people who gave us the money, Google specifically, isn't getting to direct what that person does. The steering council is actually going to do that. So there's very clear separation. Compare that to my work on the Python extension for VS Code, right? We're open source. We still take pull requests. We're still driven by the community. But like I am paid to help keep that running. My my teammates and me and everyone else involved get paid to work on this. Mm-hmm. So the expectation is different, right? Like Microsoft has vested interest to keep this going. Same with VS Code or anything else coming from Microsoft or Google or any of these other large corporations that are doing open source. So I think it's reasonable to say like, you should still treat them nicely, by the way. This is not to get people off the right. being rude. Right. But the expectations of this is going to be around for a while, I think, makes sense, right? Like, if your company produces a programming language, chances are they depend on it. So, chances are they're going to keep it going and they'll keep it healthy. So, I think expecting that to be around and placing your bet but on that. that doesn't mean they're going to take it in a direction that you like, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. So, there's lots of facets to these decisions. They're right? going to take it in the direction that they think makes sense. Just like Python is going to be taken in the direction that the dev team thinks makes sense and everyone's going to do it their own way. And I don't want to say that you can't rely on community open source versus corporate, but you can know the motivations behind it and what that means for you, right? Like you might be able to convince people more in the community just because discussions might be more in the open or they might just not have any pre-planned anything and just you can just come in like, oh, that's a good idea to do it. Like versus corporate where you don't know about some planning that might be happening like every mm-hmm. quarter, s- semester, right? Like we try to plan out the quarter and the semester and we commun- communicate it out as best we can, but stuff comes up and we work with it and just it means we have different priorities potentially than what you may expect and whatever. And that just is part of life. And they both have the pros and cons and whatever, but that's very different. Yeah. But, there, and, but even community-based, you have people who are getting – GitHub sponsorships to keep stuff going or Patreon potentially or Tidelift or whatever, which once again, also potentially changes things, right? Because like Tidelift is very explicit about what that means. Right. GitHub sponsors is what the sponsor, the person you're sponsoring says they will do because of this, but it very much varies. And I don't Mm -hmm. think we have any, there's no standard at all. And I don't think there ever probably will be because this is a very squishy, like, how do you say like, ah, I am corporate backed, so I'm not going anywhere versus I'm community based or whatever, or I publish everything publicly and there's nothing behind closed doors that you will never know about versus we have certain things that will come up that we'll have to prioritize. Sorry, versus I'm getting paid to make these promises versus not. And there's no way to really communicate any of this well. And so you kind of have to do your research. And I know a lot right. of people go like, well, I can't do that. I don't know. Like if you're in the node world, right? I can't go through my 365 dependencies to see what their promises are. Right. Especially your transitive dependencies that you didn't even, you didn't even opt into those. You opted into somebody who opted into them. Yeah. It's hard. It's tricky. I am not yeah. saying there's a good answer to any of this to be able to understand this. But this is also why almost regardless of all that taxonomy I just said, if you just went with the expectation that this is a gift, right? One time and future promises, you won't be future whatever, you won't be disappointed, right? Yeah. You have the gift. It works today. If you might have to tweak it to keep it going, as Adam said, maybe or maybe not, you might not have the technical know how, but it still was way cheaper for you to start with this than to develop the complete thing from scratch, probably. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if we have to work out a balance here of how much open source does a company pull in versus we just have to hire someone to do it just because that critical. You don't always have to go that way. But I mean, if there is a way to make it work with the open source project and have someone on staff who contributes and becomes more of a maintainer, that's awesome, right? That actually happened to me, right? Like we thought we were going to have a need on the, on the Python extension for something in Python packaging, actually the packaging project, which is a little mis poorly named because it's hard to say I work on the packaging project in the packaging community of Python. But um, yeah, exactly. Right. We thought we we're going to have a need. So I went to the project and said, Hey, we have a need for this thing. And I worked with the team there and I got it up and now I'm, I'm a maintainer of the project. So I'm able to help out and get what we need from the project. But as one of those, we gave back because we saw it as a good thing. But I also happen to be paid to make sure we get the software we need, whether it's open source or not. 
And I sometimes think companies forget that, right? It's like free, 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 free. It's like, no, no, there's a technical debt to that. That's not technical debt in terms of you refactoring code. There's technical debt in terms of that project may go away someday. Mm -hmm. So how do we manage that type of technical debt, right? And I just realized that's a reasonable analogy and I wish I had come up with that years ago. The open source technical debt of maintaining that is still there, right? Just like open source from a cost might seem free to you, there's still a cost to me in terms of my life, literally in terms of time. Yeah, yeah. There's also to you a technical debt of what happens if that project never gets another commit ever well, again. Blog post coming soon. You just you just created one right there. There's always a cost. I have to save it for the new podcast. For Dr. Brett teaches you open source. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. There you go. Well, there's always a cost and it just shifts, right? There's yeah. always a cost to somebody, yeah. to the there's organization, no to an individual. Just someone else pays for your lunch. There's never a free lunch. Yet. Is that what you're keying off of? There isn't. Yeah. And there's always a cost and it's paid by somebody. But, you know, the premise of open source isn't necessarily just simply free as in money, but free in all ways. You know, free to contribute, free to fork, you know, you know, liberal licenses, you know, very yeah. permissive, et cetera. And but there is a cost paid somewhere along the line by somebody or a small group of people to do something or other. And that just shifts around to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, the best situation is the you pull down this code and your technical debt was literally just integrating that code the one time and it's perfect for the rest of that code's days and your project, you never have to pull another version again and it's life perfect and it's there and life's great. Life is grand. Oh, to live in that world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After that, maybe it's, oh, Dependabot or something else comes along and says, yeah, we got to pull a new version, either security hole or newer stuff that runs faster or whatever. And you just tweak a thing and you pull down a newer version. Everything just works. Great. Maybe it's integration and new version and it breaks some things. So now you have to update your APIs. It varies, but it can go all the way up to project's gone, maintainer's gone, code's gone, right? Could have been deleted, right? This is why major corporations who have the staffing mirror the hell out of all the open source they pull down. And you have to state, I use this open source so that they can get that tarball of source code and have it on disk in case they need it for some reason. And... Code's gone, yeah. maintainer's gone, something broke, and now we got to fix it. Mm. And that is potential technical debt that I think everyone who takes on open source has to be ready to deal with, regardless yeah. of who backs it, because life happens, stuff happens, companies go out of business, who knows? There's no guarantees in life, and that goes with open Priority source. Priority shift, you know? It doesn't even have to be go out of business, it could be, I'm just done. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just done. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are hypotheticals. Like I've been an open source user long enough. I've been through every one of those scenarios as a user. Yep. Like project changes direction that I don't like, or project ceases to exist, code is gone, or bug just remains open forever and they license ignore changes. me. License change. I've been through them all. And sometimes, you know, you got to take different action, but you got to do something because once you receive the gift, you own the code, right? Yep. Like it's your problem now. I received yeah. the gift from you. It was a gift. I'm looking at gift horse in the horse in the mouth, and maybe I don't like the gift anymore. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's mine now, and I have to deal with that. And so these things do happen. I mean, the technical debt is real, and you mm -hmm. got to pay it off at some point. Yep. So very good point there. Let's change gears slightly here at the end. It's related. So you have your 18 years plus, right? You're yep. hitting up on your your two decades involved in Python. Yeah. And we know the, we've had the BDFL retire. I'm just mm -hmm. curious. You you did face burnout at one point. Like you can go back and listen to our episode with you. Mm -hmm. um, we'll link those up in the show notes. You've been on the show a couple yeah. of times. Great conversations. Mm -hmm. You seem like you're doing pretty well now and today. Mm -hmm. Just seem like you are. Maybe you can disagree with that. But curious if you have an end game. Like is there an open source end game? Or do you imagine that you'll just keep doing what you're doing now into perpetuity until you retire from public life? Or what do you think in that way? So, yes, thanks. I am doing better than I have in the past on occasion. It's one of these fluctuating things. Basically, I did not have anything negative happen to me in open source today, so I'm good. Okay, so uh, today was a good day. Today was a good day. The, no, the, the, the hairball from the cat was yesterday, so that's all good. <laughs> totally with the cracks getting fixed Friday, so things are on a good trajectory. Yeah, Endgame, the joke I've been making lately is the dev manager at Microsoft to pay for my open source addiction. So the end game is to get to retire from work so I can do more open source. <laughs> um, okay. And I, I, open source uh, retirement. I like it. Yeah. Well, to be honest, that, that probably would be what I do just because I do this because I enjoy it, right? Once again, this is a passion thing for me, right? Like 
I went to Microsoft because they gave me that 20% time that I wanted to get to do what I wanted. Plus I get to work on open source the other 80% of the time, right? Like I got yeah. to make that. I was very lucky enough to be in a privileged enough position to make sure that I got to have that as my work life. And I still managed to steal time during the week to work on other projects in my spare time and still get to work on what I want to work on and all that. And my wife is tries to be as understanding as she can be as a non-developer right now, although she's starting to learn a little bit of coding. Why the heck does someone find this so much fun that they want to do it in their spare time on top of work time? Like, right. Ah. Hey, I know plenty of developers still think I'm bonkers when I tell them that. But yeah, I'd like to think that I will get to the point where I don't burn out. And honestly, even if I did, what I would probably do is I would just do code dumps, right? Like one of the ways I've learned to cope with it, there's a couple, like I've developed a couple of coping mechanisms that have really helped, right? Like okay. I take at least one day every week off where I do not touch anything that requires me to interact with people from the open source community. And that's a defense mechanism to make sure that I don't get that erstwhile user who's cranky. You need a buffer. I need a buffer. I need that guarantee that I'm not going to read that email or that issue or anything like that that's somehow going to be a trigger of someone being mad. Because when it hits, my wife sees it on my face and goes, what's wrong? And <laughs> so it's very visible that it ruins my day or at least ruins a couple hours of my day. So I have that one month a year. Outside of work hours, I don't do any open source that would, once again, cause me to have to interact with other people. I'm allowed to code and I can push code, but I don't really deal with anything else otherwise. And I've actually started to be a bit more opinionated in my projects because by having an opinion, it makes it easier to say no, because that also helps set expectations for people that this is going to go the way I want it to go. And if it works for you, great. Welcome. You're welcome to come along on the ride and get what you want out of it. But if it doesn't meet your needs, that's okay too. You're welcome to go fork it, go create whatever you want. You don't have to use the software. It's a free gift, but just yeah. realize I'm going a very specific direction with this and don't expect me to add stuff just because it might solve a problem for you. Because if it doesn't solve it for me, I'm not in the mood to support it and maintain it and keep it going. And that's helped a lot too, because yeah, as I said, saying no is a lot easier now. That's a little unfortunate. I'd like to be able to potentially be more helpful, but it simplifies my life enough that allows me to keep doing this. Well, you need that protection. I think that your coping is a version of protection, right? How you cope with the threats of the world yeah. to your physical being, your mental health, et cetera. Yeah. You know, you're, how you think of the world today because of what you've dealt with, the cat ball, as you mentioned, or the, the fur ball or something like that. Yeah. That's a version of protection. So it seems like you put a lot of thought into how you cope. Yeah. It seems like you have to put a lot of thought into how you, because Jared actually bought Endgame. I'm curious how, can you get specific? Maybe what would a day in retirement in open source look like for you? Like, would you be advising on the community? Would you be writing code? Would you, like, give me an example of, like, the things you love to do in open source. What's my perfect Sunday? Yeah. Uh, to quote Hot Fuzz. <laughs> Specifically for open source, to keep it focused. I don't know, it kind of runs the gamut, right? Like coding's great. I enjoy creating and all that stuff. I love teaching and helping people. Like I actually enjoy giving talks and doing these podcasts with the two of you and those other folk who I also speak to on podcasts. Can we invite you? To <laughs> Wait a second. There are other podcasts? Yeah, occasionally invite me over to have a chat. There are other I'm sorry to say I there are. I don't believe it. Yeah. I'm not going to. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> say their names, please. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> You're all friendly folk. It's okay. Of course, yeah. You know what? On, on that note, for real, we love other podcasts. Yeah, We're yeah, y'all do. Is better because there's more than just us. Yeah, absolutely. We legit do. Like, we want to see everyone thrive. Yeah. We're not a, hey, come listen to our shows only and they don't exist place. So just to be super clear about that. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, joking, yeah. but I want to be clear. Yeah, no, totally <laughs> fair, right? Like, no <laughs> one's ever. community. And I've never been on a podcast where anyone has suggested that, yeah, don't don't mention that other podcast you were interviewed on a week or month or whatever ago. Yeah, like, no we would never do no that. No one's ever done that. You two or anyone else. Yeah, to be this is I'm joking amongst friends just for everyone who don't yes. know that I talked to Jerry Adam. Anyway, yeah, and just helping out and stuff. I would like to not have to deal with code of conduct issues over again. That's another thing I've done as a coping mechanism, which is a little weird, is I'm on the conduct working group for the Python Software Foundation. So I try to do what I can to help with our code of conduct for the PSF and Python in general and kind of try to engender and create that welcoming, inclusive environment that I would want to have be there if I was starting out. 
and to help those who are not as lucky as I am based on my position of privilege as being a very tall white Canadian male. No one has. And so that it's stressful, but it does let me help make sure that things are going the way they I feel should and need to be going so that these problems that I've happened to have come across don't perpetuate going forward. I'm doing that as a coping mechanism to make sure the environment ends up the way it needs to be. But retirement-wise, I would love to not have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just kind of more or less what I do today. With complete freedom. Yeah. Yeah. To say no or to say yes. Yeah, exactly. Just or what? to say yes a lot more than you say no. Because yeah. you can now. Because yeah, it's not 20%, it's now it's 80 or 100% or whatever the number is you assign yourself. Exactly. It's it, Whatever strikes my fancy today. Yeah. That's good. Brett, I'm glad that you have thought through those things to think about coping, to think about, you know, your end game. I think it's important. Something I like to think about often is what are you optimizing for? Because mm-hmm. it, it shows what you want to do, gives you the opportunity to have that opinion, to say no, like you said before. And a lot of people don't think about what they're optimizing for. They just sort of just do. And, you know, it's just sort of like haphazard to some degree. Not everybody. I'm just saying, like, if you think about what you're optimizing for, it gives you a chance to have that opinion so that you can say no. So that you can work on the things you want to work on, not what others want you to work on. And you can have a healthy balance or approach to the work you do. But, Brett, you know, you're a friend of ours. We love having you on the show. This special thing for Upstream and for Maintainer Week is obviously open source software maintainers are near and dear to our heart. We literally love open source maintainers and we show up because we have that love. And that's why we produce the shows we produce. That's why we do this in our business. We came for the tech and stay for the humans, is what I like to say, because we literally love humans and we want to see everybody thrive. Brett, you're awesome. Dr. Brett Cannon, you're awesome. Thanks. Appreciate you. Doctor. All right, that's it for this episode of The Changelog. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for you at changelaw.com. You should check out. Subscribe to the master feed. Get them all at changelaw.com slash master. Get everything we ship in a single feed. And I want to personally invite you to join the community at changelaw.com slash community. It's free to join. Come hang with us in Slack. There are no imposters and everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.